like its DPP. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Monday, August 16, 2021, in case you're wondering. But either way, whatever date it is, we're starting to explore the Torah portion of Ki Teitze. And just again, just, just to check in, I gave everybody here in person two pieces of paper for the first and second readings. Paper one is for reading one, paper two is for reading two. Do you guys have that? Yes? yes? Okay. And I also have to apologize for those of you that are here in person. Um, the AC conked out this morning. By the way, it was worse before we made some adjustments. Anyway. Because, because usually it's freezing. I know, I know. Can't, can't get this place right. Okay, so here we go. We're going to jump into a new Torah portion. Today is Monday, which means that it's really the second reading for today. But we didn't do yesterday because we don't do Sunday. So we have this double header. And also, as always, everyone is invited, if you're around, if you're in town, and you're available, um, to join us Mondays for the in-person version, which we've called Peachy Parsha, Lunch from Spicy Peach. Okay, that's a bit of a of a scheduling and public service announcement. Let's jump in. We are the 21st, we're studying the 21st chapter of Devarim Deuteronomy. This is verse number 10. Ki teitze la milchama. If you go out to war. Oh, wait, I'm so sorry. I don't have it up on my screen. Sorry. Sorry, folks. I'm going to rectify that right now. Here we go. Okay, sharing the screen. Ta-da! Can you guys see that? Kitetse? Yes. Okay, beautiful. Um, reading number one. Here we have a discussion about war and about the Eshet Yifat To'ar, the captive, the woman who's taken captive, and the soldier wants to marry her, etc. You'll see the laws in a moment. A lot of spiritual meaning behind these laws as well. But let's go into it. All right. Verse number 10. If you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God will deliver him into your hands, and you take his captives, and you see, verse 11, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her, you may take her for yourself as a wife. So let's just, before we get further, let's just break this down. So the context here is war. And the Torah says, if you go out to war, this is not an obligatory war. This is a war that, you know, we don't want wars to happen. No one wants war. You know, that's, it's crazy what's going on now in the world with Afghanistan. That's a whole... Anyway, so it, w no one wants war. No one wants conflict. If you go out to war against your enemies, which also has a layer of spiritual meaning. Because in the Hebrew... It's not against your enemies. If you look in the Hebrew side, it's al oivecha, which means above or on top of your enemies. Al means above, on top of. So the deeper meaning here is that when you go out to war, you should have the confidence that you will be victorious. You should, have, you should be confident that you will prevail, and the confidence itself will help the success with the success of the mission. So when you go out to war against your enemies, you need to know that you're not just against your enemy. But you're You're on top of your enemy. You got this. It's in the bag. What are they? Ha so in modern terminology, let's connect this to the way modern, the modernists would speak. It's that when you're facing challenge, you need to um, envision success, right? Picture your success. Picture 
your achievement. And then it will materialize. So here, the first thing we need to do is imagine there are, we're already on top, even before we start, that we're already on top of our enemies. Then, indeed, that is what will happen. Hashem will deliver the enemy into our hands. But here's a scenario. What happens if this happens? And then you take captives. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman. And you say, oh, I would like to be with her. So the Torah says, you may take her for yourself as a wife. Right? No such thing as just taking a captive and doing whatever you want. Again, you with me on this? These are the ethics, Jewish ethics of war. Because I probably don't need to tell you that in wars for, for all of history, the way it's worked is the captives, sorry, the, um, the victors do whatever they want, take whomever they want, and do with whomever they take whatever they want, without getting into detail. The Torah says, if you see amongst the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her, okay, are you ready to marry her as a wife? Right? Not just as a captive, as a wife. Here we go. So here's the process. And if the answer is yes, okay, not so simple. Here's the process. Verse number 12. You should bring her into your home, and she shall shave her head and let her nails grow. And that means... See her, not all dressed up perhaps, but see her in a more, um, I would say natural state, but I mean her hair is shaved, so that's not necessarily a natural state, but in a less beautified, unadorned. unadorned, thank you, that's a very good word, in a more unadorned or in an unadorned state. In other words, do you still really care about her to marry her, you know, in, in an unadorned state? Okay, that's really what this is. So it's, right, she should be in an unadorned state, and then we'll see if you still really want to marry her, if it was just a momentary desire. And let's continue, verse 13, and she shall remove the garment of her, of her captivity from, from upon herself, and stay in your house, and let her weep for a father and for a mother for a full month. In other words, nothing happens for a month. Again, how different is this than the way things work in the world where pretty much no rules govern? I don't, I mean, maybe there are rules, I don't know, international rules of, of war, but I, it's, it's not followed to my understanding. I mean, you go in and, 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 and you, you're victorious and that's it. I mean, right now, was it in Afghanistan even that they were taking the young girls out from their homes? I mean, is that, is that did I hear that correct? women between the ages of 15 and 45 to be married off to Taliban fighters. There you go. Okay. So they're getting lists of women. This is happening till, till, till this day. And the Torah says there's no such thing. You want, you, 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 you're desiring a particular woman? Okay, no problem. Are you ready to commit to her? <laughs> right? And how do you know? She's going to stay with you for a month. Nothing happens for a month. She's in an unadorned state mourning her father and her mother, mourning, you know, the, what, what, her, the life that, she, that she's lost. And then after that, the Torah says, if you still want to marry her, you, can be, you, you may be intimate with her and possess her. Possessor means not, okay, that's, that's a bad translation. Possessor, okay? And she will be a wife for you. That just means take her for a wife. Possess, again, I say a bad choice of translation. Um, 
But essentially, the Torah is going the other way. You don't, you don't own her. She's not yours to do whatever you want with. Because if that were the case, right? No, we want, so this is a captive. I could do with her whatever I want. No, that's actually literally what the Torah is saying not, is not the case. The only thing you're allowed to do, if you choose, is to marry her. And if you marry her, you have to know the person that you're marrying. There has to be at least a 30-day waiting period. Next. No, but the understanding here is that she would, you know, come over to the Jewish faith. Again, I've mentioned this many times. It's a very important thing to remember when it comes to conversion. That conversion today is like a very complicated thing, but it's not really at its core a complicated thing. So to explain, it's just conversion. Moses' wife wasn't Jewish. I mean, a lot originally wasn't born Jewish. Conversion means, yes, I'm on board. That's it. The question is, how do you know you're on board? How does, how does the Bezdin know that you're, how does the court know that you're on board if they're, you know, stamping it? And how, do the per, how does the person know that they really want to be on board if they haven't yet learned about it or practiced it? That's why it takes time. Just about the sincerity of it. The implication here is that there has to be a sincere situation on both sides. But there's a, pro, you know, the rule is not, it's really not speaking to her, it's speaking to him. It's saying, you can't just do whatever you want. It's not property. It's not, it's not like, uh, sure, you won whatever you want. It's not, it's not how it works. It's not like the goal that you can... Exactly. Right. Exactly. Oh, we won. Yay, I get to do whatever. No. You, you, you like her? Commit to her. Commit to her. Not just whatever you want. It's, a, it's, it's especially... Look. I would say that this is something that has been a struggle for all time, right? Within the struggle, okay, again, without, just, without getting too, you know, detailed and too, you know, stuck into, into this idea, but historically, there's been a struggle for women to be respected for who they are as opposed to seen as objects, etc., right? Let's just leave it at that. It's a, it's, it's a challenge to this very day, right? It's a challenge in relationships, a challenge in communities, a challenge in various um, um, industries, right? Of course, we know about the Me Too movement that happened in Hollywood and the other industries, and it's a challenge in gaming, in the gaming uh, world. There's a lot of challenges with that, with, with, with women being respected, et cetera, and not just seen you know, in a certain way. And the point here is, it's not even giving the, this idea in a general context. It's in a context where there's even more of a chance for a woman to be marginalized and to be seen as an object and not as a human being. And the Torah says, even in this, I'm going to call it more extreme example, where there's a war and there's a, there's a captive of war, you still have to see her as a human being, right? That's the extent. Anyway, I hope what I'm saying makes sense. I don't want to belabor the point. Okay. The Torah then continues to talk about the laws of, in this context, the law of divorce. And it's interesting because, you know, any system that has uh, rules of marriage also has, well, I can't say every system. Okay, but in, in Judaism, there are laws of marriage and laws of divorce. Kedushin is marriage. Gitin is, is uh, laws of divorce. It's interesting that the laws of divorce are in this context of this type of marriage. 
the commentaries explain that the Torah is alluding to the fact that, you know, when you don't go into it, maybe for the 100% the right reasons, because, you, you know, you just you caught your eye and, you know, you got excited and then you went through the process, but whatever, maybe that, won't, that relationship won't last. Not saying for sure, but it's, you got to be, there's a possibility that that's not going to be a long-term thing when it's not predicated on the right core values, when it didn't start from the inside out, but from the outside in. We've talked about this many times. Four layers of human compatibility in relationships correspond to the four worlds of Kabbalah. There's, um, from the top down, there's Atzilat, Bria, Yitzir, and Asiya. This corresponds roughly to the dimensions within the human being of spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and physical. And there are four levels of relationship compatibility. There can be physical compatibility, emotional compatibility, intellectual compatibility, and spiritual compatibility. And the deeper the connection, the deeper the level of connection is, the more likely the relationship will be to last. So if the relationship is only predicated on the lowest rung of the ladder, so to speak, the physical, well, that's the most changing element of any person and any relationship because no one looks the same at 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75. Literally, people, we, human beings don't look the same. So to, to, to base a relationship on the physical is to, is to put it on a, on a shifting foundation. It's like building an edifice on a foundation that is literally, by definition, moving. It's a moving, it's a moving foundation. So that's not, a, okay, that's not a great way to build uh, a building. You don't build a building on, on quicksand. It doesn't make sense. Emotional is a little bit more stable, but also very volatile. We feel differently as we go through life. We like things and we stop liking things, and that changes. Intellectual, a little bit more solid, a little bit more stable. The spiritual, the, the soulful connection, is, of course, the most stable. Now, there's no guarantees in life, right? You, somebody was a spiritual way, one, you know, and then ch obviously there's, there's, there's core values that could change. Um, but typically core values, spiritual values, are typically the way they are. Even if they're manifest in slightly different ways, they typically remain consistent. So basing a relationship on core values is always the best way to proceed. The point here is this relationship 100% was not based on core values. This was a soldier who saw a captive, and it says, I mean, look, the Torah, the Torah tells us the case. If you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire her, there you go. You saw her, she was beautiful, and now you wanted her, which means that it's a physical, there was a physical attraction there. Okay? So in this context, the Torah says, FYI, here are the laws of divorce. Because, not that it's going to necessarily end in divorce, but, you know, when you, when you think about, relationships and marriages, one that's based on uh, a, a spiritual connection and other things, or one that's based on a physical um, compatibility connection, the, 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 the more volatile, the less stable, the more likely it will, it will hit some, some challenges that might not be surmountable. Okay, does, does that make sense? Am I like belaboring the point? Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Verse 14. And it will be, if you do not desire her, so you married her, and now you no longer want to be married to her, 
then you shall send her away wherever she wishes. In other words, divorce. But you shall not sell her for money. Okay, now the reason why it says do not sell her for money, which sounds like very odd about one's wife, is because the, the origin story is that she was a captive. So the point is you cannot say, oh, well, she, I married a captive, so she's a POW, so like, let's just sell her as a slave. No, 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 no. It's your wife. You want to divorce her? Okay, we can talk about that, but you can't just, yeah. You shall not keep her as a servant because you have afflicted her. In other words, you cannot mess around in this situation. You married her. Now, you don't want to be married to her. It's, you can't, she is, she deserves that dignity. Okay, next. So that's the laws of di divorce. Yeah. Sure. So I, of course, was married with the ketubah. I have a ketubah. Right. But I just got a civil divorce, so do I need a debt? Yeah. Yeah. So where, did, where was the marriage? In New York? Okay. Okay, so we could talk more about that. Yeah. It's not, it's not a complicated process, but yeah. If there's... The, the way it works in Jewish law is if you got in with the Jewish law, then it should also be undone Jewishly as well. So if it's just civil, then civil, but if, it's, if it had that Jewish element, then yeah. We could talk more about that. Oh yeah? Interesting. Maybe Jewish summer cinema. Coming soon to a, <laughs> to, to a theater near you. I'm looking out at the theater right now. Okay, so here we go. Uh, now, verse 15 gets into other scenarios. And you know, they're all predicated on marrying for the wrong reasons. I hate to say that, but like the whole story begins with a, with a captive and a guy finding her attractive, which again, is not the best. I mean, look, could that relationship work? Sure. I mean, hopefully, like we're all, we're all you know, pulling for them to work out. But if there's any relationship that has a potential not to work out, it's one that's based on a more shallow connection than a deeper connection. The goal is deeper connections and less shallow connections. So here's the next scenario, verse 15. If a man has two wives, now we get into another scenario, two wives, one beloved and, and the other despised. Now you're thinking, well, who has two wives? What kind of business is that? Rachel and Leah. Well, okay, Rachel and Leah, sure, Jacob had two <laughs> wives. But biblically, polygamy is not prohibited. For the man, it's not prohibited for, them, for, a, for a husband to have more than one wife. Okay, we don't do it. Because <laughs> rabbinically, it's, it's banned. So it's not, it's not a Jewish thing to do. But biblically, it's theoretically okay. It was never in uh, uh, mainstream. Rabbinically, as I said, over the last many years, over a thousand years, it's not been a Jewish thing. But it's theoretically, biblically a possibility. And again, this is really more of a scenario of understanding scenarios. So let's say a man has two wives, one beloved and the other despised. So he loves one and the other one, not so much. And listen to this. And they bear him sons, the beloved one and the despised one. And the firstborn son is from the despised one. So he has two wives. One he loves, one not so much. The eld each one has a child, a son. And the firstborn son is from the wife that he's not so into. Take a look at verse 16. Then it will be 
On the day he, the husband, bequeaths his property to his sons, he will not be able to give the son of the beloved wife birthright precedence over the son of the despised wife, the real firstborn son. In other words, you cannot skip the actual firstborn. You cannot say, well, I love this mom, this wife, and her son more than the other one. No, 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 you can't play favorites. The reality is the firstborn is the firstborn, and that's it. So, again, he will not be able to give the son of the beloved wife birthright precedence over the son of the despised wife, the real firstborn son. Rather, verse 17, and we're now on the second page, sorry, the second side of page 1. Um, rather, he must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the despised wife, and give him, the firstborn, a double share in all that he possesses. So the rule is, with inheritance, is that the firstborn son gets a double portion over all of the other sons. That's the rule. Nassen, who's my oldest son, if you're listening, time to get excited. Anyway, no. So, well, that's... <laughs> all right. So, the, the firstborn gets a double share. And in this case, even though he loves one wife and not so much the other wife, and maybe the kid also the, of the beloved wife he loves more than the other kid, it doesn't matter. The firstborn son gets the double share. Because he, this, this firstborn son, the Torah says, is the first of his strength, and he has the birthright entitlement. In other words, the firstborn is the firstborn. It's objective. Don't play favorites. Okay. Next, the Torah continues with more scenarios. And by the way, all of this is a product all of this is, as the commentators explain, a continuum of falling in love, not necessarily for the right reasons, right? You didn't know her. You didn't know her, right? You had nothing in common, but she was attractive. And then you're like, okay, we're going to make it work. But you know what? It might not work. And then what happens if you stay with her, but you don't really like her? So you take another wife who you love. And then, but she had the first kid, and then she had the second kid. So you have to give her kid the firstborn inheritance. And then it leads to the next scenario, verse 18. Again, the commentators see, the, see this as a continuum. If a man has a wayward and rebellious son who does not obey his father or his mother, and they chasten him, chasten? Chasten? Not sure. They, Viistroso, uh, they, um, they try to correct his behavior. They rebuke him. And he still does not listen to them. So here we go, verse 19. His father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gates of his place, and to the gate of his place. And they shall say to the elders of the city, of the city this son of ours is, a, is wayward and rebellious. He does not obey us. He is a glutton and a guzzler. He is a glutton and a guzzler. Look at that. What's a glutton and what's a guzzler? A glutton is, what would you say? What's a glutton? Somebody who overeats. Right? And what's a guzzler? Right. So, the, so Jewish law derives from this something very specific. That he has to eat and, and like indulge in certain things. And he has to drink certain things. The Talmud, in discussing the scenario, explains... That it's such a specific scenario about how old this young man is, the rebellious son. What he has to eat, what he has to drink, 
what forms of rebellion he has to take, that the odds of this ever happening are basically zero. But the Torah is giving us the concept. What happens, verse 21, let's get to the, what's the bottom line, what happens to this theoretical child. And all the men of his city shall pelt him to death with stones and he shall die. So shall you, yeah, yeah, capital punishment for the rebellious son. So shall you clear out, I would hope that no parent ever said to their child, threatening them with the rebellious son. So shall you clear out the evil from among you and all Israel will listen in fear. Okay, again, this, this never happened and it will never happen. The, the, the rules and regs for this to happen or the scenario, the precise scenarios that, that, that needs to take place for this to happen are basically zero. I'm going to share with you some Rashi. So if, if you're online, you can see it up here. If you're not online, you have to take my word for it. So the, the Rashi says, take a look. They will chasten him. The parents must warn him in the presence of three people. Oh, look at this. And what are, what's the warning? Three things. Not to steal, not to eat a certain quantity of meat, and not to drink a certain quantity of wine. And then they must have him flogged by the court. The Talmud amends this to read, they must warn him in the presence of two witnesses and have him flogged in the presence of three judges. The wayward and rebellious son incurs punishment only, listen to this, the wayward and rebellious son incurs punishment only if he steals money from his father, consumes, consumes at one meal a tartamar, a weight equal to half a mana of meat, and drinks at the same meal half a log of wine, as it is said, referring to him, a glutton and a guzzler, and elsewhere it says, do not be among wine guzzlers, among gluttonous eaters of meat, etc., which indicates that the term guzzler refers to wine and glutton refers to meat. Oh, that's how we know that glutton and guzzler refers to specifically meat and wine because there are other verses in Torah because glutton could just be food in general. Guzzler could be drinking in general. How do we know it means meat and wine specifically? Because there are other verses that, that make that comparison. Um, yeah. I have a note. Yeah. This is from a... Uh, hey, Mark. Veteran. First of all, hi, Mark. Good to hi, see you. Hi, how are you? Hey, good. Uh, about about the, the glutton part. Yeah. It said uh, the weight... In other words, he, he eats uh, the weight of 50 gold dinars, which is approximately 8 ounces. Uh, but the wayward son must eat this quantity in a single mouthful. Oh. That's... Yeah. yeah. 8 ounces... In one mouthful. That's why the... Ta- it's when this never... can't happen. It's a theoretical scenario to bring out, like, what's it bringing out? That's a, that's a question in of itself. It's bringing out, like, a, the- a theoretical scenario, but it's not. Eight, how big is eight ounces of Half meat? A pound. Half a pound. So what would that look like uh, with meat? Is that a steak? Is a steak usually eight, eight ounces? Steak. Huh, a whole steak? Small steak. But in one mouthful? Eight ounces. Eight ounces. Yeah, I could not do that. 200 grams. <laughs> Eight ounces, two hundred gram. But as, I don't know how much. Well, you know they have those hot dog eating contests at Coney Island where they just. Oh, Kobayashi, yeah, yeah, hot dog. Yeah, Donna mentioned the hot dog eating contest in Coney Island. Right, those are great. Those guys, color man. Oh, it could be like a half pound burger. Oh, a half pound, but in one bite. Yeah. Mark, you said in one bite, right? Yeah, one mouthful. Okay, that's very um, ambitious. What about the wine? How much wine is it? Do you have a note on that? Yeah, that, that's another one from Sanhedrin. Yeah. It's 
opinions regarding the moderate equivalent range between 12 and 21 fluid ounces. The Weyrich settlement strength is quantity in a single draft. What does draft mean? I don't know. Not in one gulp. I think it's a gulp. What's a drought? I don't, D-R-A-U-G-H-T. Oh, D-R-A-U-G-H-T. What does that mean? D-R-A-U-G-H-T. Oh, yeah, what if it's a continuous pour? Yeah. Like guzzle. Yeah, that, that, that probably would work. Not that we're trying to figure out how to get into the category of the rebellious sun, by the way. But just the Talmud, but, but there's more, there are more details, by the way. The sun has to be a certain age. My understanding is, again, you probably have the notes there. It has to be a certain type of, very specific type of meat prepared in a very specific way. Oh, it has to be raw meat. It has to be, I believe so, it has to be raw meat or not cooked over a certain amount. Um, Mark, if you see any other notes in your, in your text, let me know. It's all in the Talmud. It's all in Sanhedrin. But it's very, very difficult for this to ever happen. And the Talmud says it never happened. Um, let's continue in this Rashi while Mark looks that up. The wayward and rebellious son is executed. Why is he executed? Listen to this. On account of what he will become in the end. The Torah penetrates to his ultimate intentions. In other words, the Torah foresees what will ultimately happen. Eventually, he will squander his father's money, seek what he has become accustomed to, not find it, stand at the crossroads and rob people, killing them, thereby incurring the death penalty. Says the Torah, let him die innocent of such crimes rather than have him die guilty of such crimes. Now, that sounds a little, like, scary. We're punishing people based on their future crimes. Based on, right? Like, how do you even know? Wasn't there a movie about that where you could like read people's minds? Minority Report or something? Yeah, Tom Cruise? Yes? Okay. Speaking of which, by the way, I saw a Scientology truck. I was driving behind a Church of Scientology in Atlanta. They had like a a truck. Now, my kids don't know necessarily. I don't think they know what Scientology is. But my son, one of my sons who was in the car, it was like a yellow van. And... It looked like a prisoner transport van. You know the ones that have like the steel mesh thing behind the front, the front row, and then it was just open behind it? So my kids are like, why is that church having a prisoner transport van? And I'm like, I don't actually know, but Scientology, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> All sorts of crazy things. Anyway, my point here is not to diss Scientology. Nonetheless, I mentioned Tom Cruise, so, you know. Can't not. You know what? That's actually not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. I think for for Sukkot we're gonna have a a a pedal sukkah, one of those um, bike sukkahs oh, yeah? for the belt line. So, the so no, somebody you know drives it, but you could sit in the back and do. Oh my! I saw the craziest thing in Midtown. Yeah, I saw the craziest thing in Midtown in, in Atlanta on West Peachtree. Listen to this. It was an open truck that was a bar where everyone sits at the bar and pedals. I did one of those. Oh, yeah. But what, I, what, is it, what is that? My mind was blown. <laughs> yeah, they had those in Nashville, yeah. But, but what, like, They're always thinking of something. No, but what's the concept? Why do you have to pedal? It's not making the car move. You're exercising? They have those bikes to where as a group, Tourists, you can go oh, by. Yeah, but, but the bike is not making it go. The guy is driving it. No. Oh, it's yeah. bike powered? 
Maybe it's bike powered. I saw the guy driving it without anybody on it, so I know it can't only be. I can't only be bike powered because the guy was literally driving it empty. And then, oh, I know what it was. I drove to Georgia Tech to drop off my kid over there to learn some bar mitzvah lessons. And then, so I saw it. It was empty. Then when I came back to do another circle, it was full. What's going on here? There's a group is supposed to pedal and drink. Right, <laughs> I guess. A it's a cool concept. What's my point? I have literally no idea. Dock boats, the amphibious, the amphibian vehicles. So what was, how do we get into that? Um, drinking and eating, no. Um, pedaling. Tom, Scientology. Tom Cruise, Scientology, hold on. Minority Report, okay, predicting crime. So the Torah says that why do we execute? It's pretty harsh. Again, never happened. But why theoretically would we execute this rebellious son? Because they're exhibiting indicators of behavior that will ultimately end with them becoming a robber, a highway bandit, and a murderer. And therefore we say, all right, let's just take, take them out right now. That's what the Torah says. That's what the commentaries explain. Okay. And how do we know that they're going to end up killing? Because look, this, this child is stealing from the parents, is, is gluttoning on food, is guzzling on the wine. When the money runs out, when the parents don't provide the money, where's he going to get the money from? He's going to rob people, and when they don't want to give him the money, he's going to kill them. So that's it. All right. Again, it is what it is. Um, it never happened. It never will happen. But it's a very interesting, a very interesting law nonetheless. What, you know, there, there must be a positive message that we can take from this, right? Like, what's the positive message? Did we finish the verse? I think we finished the verses, right? Clear out the evil? Okay. I think the positive message here, one of the positive messages here is when the Torah sets it up. Um, it says, verse 18, if you look back at verse 18, if a man has a wayward or rebellious son who does not obey his father or his mother. But in the, in the Hebrew, and this is very important, you can see, see the Hebrew, right? It's, it's um, one, two, three... Four verses from the end, Yurchas 18. So it says, he doesn't listen, he is not listening to the voice of his father and to the voice of his mother. By the way, the Talmud says, why does it say the word Bekal twice? The voice of his father and the voice of his mother. It t- tells us that the father and mother's voice, in order for this to happen, for this to be an actual case of the rebellious son, the father's voice and the mother's voice has to sound the same. It's to sound the same. So typically it's understood that they have to have it, which is again why this will never happen. Because since when, when, what are the odds that the father's voice and the mother's voice would sound identical? Like th- that's, any two people typically don't sound identical. No, but do we right. mean like not literally? Oh. They have to be on the same. Oh, good. Look, Sandrine's already. Yeah. Sandrine is darshaning. That's exactly where I was going to go. So the town. The, Right. The Talmud, but listen to this, it puts responsibility on the parents. That's the ultimate thing where we're going. You'll see what I mean in a second. The Talmud means literally that the voices have to be the same, which means it's, it's never going to happen. But the, the mystical understanding of this is means that their voices have to be on the same page, which means that if they're not on the same page and this child is rebellious, then you don't blame the child, you blame the parents. Because in order for a child to, to have whatever, for, to, opt, to give the child the best shot, parents have to be on the same page. That's the ultimate point. So to blame the child, you look at the parents first. Were they on the same page? Then, then, then we can have a uh, continue the conversation. If they weren't, then don't look at the kid. You look at the parents. 
you guys got to get on the same page. And that is, it's all, all, obviously, it's an ongoing process because, well, no one's close to perfect. No human being is close to perfect, especially when it comes to relationships, especially when it comes to parenting. And especially when it comes to two different people trying to parent and, you know, their own personalities are, uh, are, are also coming in. Anyway, so all of that is the first reading. Now, let's, wow. What a great way to start the second reading. Let's start the second reading. Um, for those of you with me here, live and local, this will be the second page that I gave you, which has reading number two, chapter 21, verse 21. All right, if a man commits a sin for which he is sentenced to death and he is put to death, you shall then hang him on a pole. Huh? Okay. Why? So that others will know and not do the same thing. However, the Torah is quick to continue with verse 23. I think I said it's verse 21. I made a mistake. It's chapter 21, verse 22, and now verse 23. But you shall not leave his body on the pole overnight. Rather, you shall bury him on that same day. And this becomes, by the way, the source for burial on the same day. From a case of execution, how you treat the body, we learn for everyone about the need for an exp to expedite the funeral and the burial. But you shall bury him on that same day. Why? For a hanging human corpse is a blasphemy of God. And you shall not defile your land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Let's pull up some Rashi's. Rashi says the following. The juxtaposition of these passages, i.e. this one and that of the wayward and rebellious son, teaches us that if his father and mother spare him, let's say the parents don't bring the kid, the rebellious son, to court, he will eventually lead an evil lifestyle and commit grave sins for which he will be sentenced to death by the court. In other words, it's going to end there. Oh, and by the way, the continuation from the beginning of the Torah portion is you'll go to war, take captives, you know, you'll be... You'll lust after one of the captives because you'll find her physically attractive. You'll not be happy with her. Either you'll divorce her or you'll stay married to her. There's going to be another wife with another kid that you prefer, but this one you won't. He's going to know it. He's going to be the rebellious son, right? Then either it'll end up the way it ended up over there with a the capital punishment, or it won't, but, but, but he'll end up leading a life of crime and ultimately be sentenced to death by the court. What's the moral of the story? Love someone for the right reasons. That's the moral of the story. Okay. Next, you shall then hang him on a pole. So here we have Rashi. A rabbi said, all who are stoned by the court must afterwards be hanged. For the verse says, a hanging human corpse is a blasphemy of God. Thus we find that a sin, the sin of blasphemy is connected with hanging. And a blasphemer is punished by stoning. Consequently, rabbi, the, a rabbi is taught that all stone, all those stoned must be hanged. So if someone is, is punished, capital punishment, by stoning, then you hang the body. Why? As a reminder of a person that others should not do what that person did. But it's only for a very short amount of time. Um, and then it's taken down. Why? Because a hanging human corpse, Rashi says, is a blasphemy of God. So this is a degradation, I'm reading Rashi here. This is a degradation of the divine king in whose image man is created, and the Israelites are God's children. This is comparable to two identical twin brothers. One of them became a king, while the other was arrested for robbery and hanged. Whoever saw him, the second brother, suspended on the gallows, would say, the king is hanging. Therefore, the king ordered, and they removed him from the gallows. Wherever the term... Uh, okay, we're going to skip that. So basically, since we're creating the image of God, it's not nice that a human body should be hanging on a pole. 
So why put it up there in the first place? The idea of a deterrent. But it can't be up there for long. They have to be buried on the same day. And that we call Kavra Mes, which means honoring and respecting the deceased and the body of the deceased. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let's see how long. Oh, yeah, perfect, perfect timing. We have a few verses. Let's do this, and we'll officially close out. You shall not see your brother's ox or sheep straying and ignore them. If you see the animal of your friend, oh, hey, that's my neighbor Bob's ox, just roaming the street, roaming the belt line. Oh, hold on. Don't ignore it. Rather, you shall return them to your brother. Yeah. Corral the animal and bring it back. Lead him back to the, to, the, to the neighbor. But if your brother is not near you or, you don't, or, or, you di- or if you do not know him, right, let's say you don't know who this, who you, see, you just see a random ox walking down the belt line. I'm looking at the belt line now. Right? So what do you do? You shall bring it into your house, and it shall be with you until your brother seeks it out, whereupon you shall return it to him. Basically, you take it home, and you take care of it until such time as you can reunite it with the owner. So they look for you, for the finder. You look for them, for the one who lost it, and hopefully you find each other. So shall you do not only with the ox or the sheep. So shall you do with his donkey. So shall you do with his garment. So shall you do with, his, with any lost article of your brother which he has lost and you found. You shall not ignore it. There's a human tendency to say, I don't want to get involved in any Good Samaritan acts, right? Somebody lost something. I, I find it on the road. I find a wallet. I find a cell phone. Ugh. Do I need the hassle? Like, I need this in my life now to track down the owner, start posting and start announcing things. Let someone else do it. The Torah says, no. We should take responsibility for each other's stuff and not keep it, but get it back to them. And this way, we, have, we live in a world in which we're looking out for each other and being honest and... Respecting property. Let's, let's continue verse number four. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen under his load on, on the road and ignore them. So here's another scenario where you help out your, your brother, your neighbor, and not literally brother, your neighbor and the neighbor's animal. Let's say you see an ox or a donkey and it's literally struggling because it's overloaded with stuff. So don't ignore the animal. Rather, you shall pick up the load with him. You should help, help the owner take, unload the load from the animal. There's an animal that's suffering. This is one of the sources of making sure that we're not being cruel to animals. So number one, don't overload your animal. If you overload loaded the animal, unload it ASAP. And if you, you see someone that's unloading their animal, go help them to alleviate ever quicker the burden on that animal. Let's continue. Verse number five. Oh, we got everything. Look at this. A man's attire shall not be on a woman, nor may a man wear a woman's garment, because whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So this would be the prohibition against wearing clothes of the other gender, which I know we live in 2021, but we're studying Torah, and this is what Yentel, Barbara Streisand, she, she dresses up. As a man. Yeah. Okay, so someone sent her, someone said, it's a movie. So like, by the way, there's a question, by the way. Hold on. I used, used by the way, twice in that sentence. There is a question, halakha question. Like on Purim, on the holiday of Purim, when everyone dresses up, is it permitted for a woman to dress up like a man or for a man to dress up like a woman? In the context of Purim, celebration, masks, you know, costumes, but does it have to remain in gender? Um, 
I believe the consensus is, yeah, it does. But once it reaches a certain age, like if a little kid wants to dress up, it's one thing. But a little bit older already, you know, this, this law would likely apply, even though it's under the category of just, you know, fun and whatever, and that's here. But next, let's continue. Verse number six. If a bird's nest, we're almost done. If a bird's nest chances before you on the road, or, uh, sorry, on any tree or on the ground, and it contains fledglings or eggs. If the mother is sitting upon the fledglings or upon the eggs, you shall not take the mother upon the young. So don't take the eggs with the mother still there. Tzugazun. You shall send away the mother, and then you may take the young for yourself in order that it should be good for you, and you shall lengthen your days. If you want the eggs, so you can take the eggs, but not with the mother still there. That's cruel. That's not nice. Don't do that. So here we're, we, we're learning the idea of compassion. Compassion to animals. If you see the animal straying, return it to its owner. If you see the animal struggling under a burden, get that stuff, get the burden off quickly. And if you see a mother bird and the babies or the, or the eggs, send away the mother first and then take the eggs. All right. And in the middle, we had the idea of not, not wearing the clothing of the other gender. Uh, so I'm sure that there are commentaries that explain how it fits into this, what seems to be a consistent theme here of compassion to animals, compassion to God's creatures. How is this to be continued? Like if I had my Mikrot Gadola with like the dozen commentaries on the page, I'm sure I would have something. I'm sure I would have something. Maybe what I can do though is I have another option. I can pull up. Oh, interesting. Rashi quotes the Talmud. What's the problem with a woman dressing like a man, making her appear like a man there by enabling her to go among men, for this can only be for the purpose of adultery. Interesting. Nor may a man wear a woman's garment to go and abide among women. Hair removal gets mentioned here. All right. Anyway, we're not gonna we're not gonna <laughs> get get into all the details here. Abomination. Okay, so Rashi explains based on the Talmud that what's the abomination? Because the wearing of these clothes, the prediction here is that it's gonna lead to immoral and illicit behavior. Okay. How does that still fit into this conversation? Okay, so we're we still need some more commentaries on it. What we might be able to do is pull up Safaria and look up Tanakh. They're asking me to become a monthly donor, so not, not this second. Torah portion is Kitetze. And we are in verse number five. So we click on it, and we have commentaries. And we have Rashi, Eben Ezra. Let's see, Eben Ezra. Oh, wait, why is this in English? It's going to be, hold on. Let's do Hebrew commentaries, Mefarshim. Ezra. Okay. Let's go back to the commentaries. Evan Ezra, Ramban, Safarnoi. Barbanel. Let's see what Barbanel has to say. All right. One second, one second, one second.
All right, yeah, Mark, jump in. Yeah, I've got a note on wearing the clothes of uh, the opposite sex. Uh, this note is from Sifrei uh, uh, 226 Nazir. Yeah, yeah. What is that? That's Sifrei is a Medrash and Nazir is, a, is the Talmud. It's the Gemara. It, it says, it, it, the, what it, the conclusion here, it says it's always an abomination, but the prohibition against wearing garments of the opposite sex applies only to a garment which could lead to, a, to an abomination. There you go. Right. So if it's so going to lead... the clothes of the opposite right. sex, the clothes... That's fa fair enough. Yeah. Sexually, sexually entice someone. Right. Right, right, right. As, as Rashi indicated as well, that it's leading to the illicit behavior, that means that the garments would be limited to that construct. That makes sense. Um, or to that, to that end. Interesting. So then maybe the Purim example would be okay. Because it's yeah. not, but I still think the custom is to try to avoid that. My my understanding is, okay, to be continued to look at that. All right, why is it, huh? Uh, abstaining from orthodox circle, adult uh, men dressing <laughs> up. Right. So you're saying it does happen, men putting on wigs and dressing or whatever. Yeah. The the British have done that for a long time, like with uh, well, obviously the, the British. I mean, seriously, plays and all the, they play the parts of women. Men play, play, play the parts. They're of the women. British. What do you expect? I'm just joking. <laughs> just joking. Not, no, no beef with the British. Nor do I want any beef with the British. Okay, fine, good. To me, to me, um, this requires more research. Like, what are what are the particulars in the modern application of this idea? Let's say vis-a-vis -vis Purim and dressing up in a costume, or you know, yeah, I was going to say Halloween, but like, let's stick with the Jewish version of it, right? Purim, what would that practically look like as far as what is okay, what's not okay? Um, would like putting on just a wig, but not clothing, is that, you know, to have longer? Would that be okay? Um, wearing a crown, like a Queen Esther thing, like an accessory. What about wearing jewelry? That's typically associated with... with um, I wasn't even going dress, I was saving that for like, yeah. But like jewelry, is, would that be considered a thing? Or is it not, as Mark said, it's not necessarily in the enticing type of... All right, we would have to look into that and see what is being written about that in modern times. As far as your question, Sandrine, about the juxtaposition between the returning the animal and not overburdening the animal um, and, and not taking the baby eggs, the chicks, the eggs, with the mother still there, as far as why that's here... Sorry, why the cross-dressing thing is here, that we have to look further. I just quickly looked in Safari. I didn't see any commentaries that speak to the, the juxtaposition. Doesn't mean they're not there. It just means I didn't find it. I don't know. It might be. It's usually repeating something. Right. I don't know. So Sandrine is asking the question, is this the only time that the prohibition against cross-dressing appears, or is it elsewhere? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anyway, interesting topic. And uh, if I, I, I do plan on looking this up, both elements of it, the modern application as well as the juxtaposition. If I find something, I will let you know. If I find something of interest, I'll let you know tomorrow. All right, thank you for joining both in person, enjoying a great lunch okay. from Spicy you, Peach. I thought the de uh, for definition for draft or drought. Yeah. So according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, drought is the, another version of the English word draft, which is the... But it's the act of the, the act or instance of drinking or inhaling 
also the portion drunk in, or inhaled in one such act. So ah, it's one guzzle. Okay, we have a definition. Thank you, thank you, Matt. We have a definition of the draft, um, which is one knocking it, just one motion of knocking it down. Obviously, the liquid would have to take time to like flow, but it would be one gulp, so to speak. One. Put the container up and drink in one, one drink. Right, just like like that. Remember that Coke commercial with um, Mean Joe Green of the Steelers, the 1970s, yeah. right? Where he drinks the Coke, the kid gives him a Coke, he drinks like the whole like two liter bottle or something and then throws the kid his jersey. Anyway, whatevs, all right, perfect, good. So now we know what not to do, right? Don't steal money from parents to just indulge in, there's a specific type of meat, by the way, it's very specific. Specific meat and specific wine, a lot of quantity in one gulp or, 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 or bite, and um, crime doesn't pay, kids. Just remember, yeah. I know this is hold on, hold on one second, Donna, yeah. Not to address fully today, but I just was thinking through this session. I'm wondering if Israel, as a new country, when they created their justice system, if they looked to the Torah for something. Don is asking if, when Israel uh, created their justice system with the founding of the state in 1948, if they turned to Torah for the, in the creation of their legal system. They turned to some Torah values, but they didn't base it on on Torah law. They based it on Western law, which is which is based on Torah, but they went based on the latest iterations, not back to the source. There is, there are, there are central, like, Jewish rabbinical courts in Israel that do explore and, you know, work on Jewish law. But the, the, the Israeli secular courts are not based on Torah law. There are some inspirations, but, but I, you couldn't say that it's, like, it's built on, Jewish, it's, uh, on Torah law. It's not. Uh, Mark, you have, Mark you'll, get the, you'll get the last word. Yeah, like about about uh, cross-dressing, whatever. Yeah, I've got a couple of good notes here. <clears throat> These are both from Sifrei two twenty six Nazir, whatever. It yeah. says the question of whether it is forbidden to wear garments of the opposite sex without intent right. to commit immoral behavior is a matter of dispute. There you go. Uh, and then it goes on to a second note. It says the text follows all the early printed editions except the Zamora edition, uh, which omits the word. Uh, I can't read this. Let's shave. It's real small. Let's shave or let's shave to sit. Right. Rashi's sources read: A man shall not adorn himself with women's ornaments and go among the women. Got a it. A man shall not woman woman's garments and sit among the women. So that's to deceive people. Right. As to, to the believe. gender. Right. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay, so that would limit it. I hear you. Yeah. Okay. All right. So with that, we'll close it out. Um, thank you for joining me for DPP. And Peachy Parsha. It's great to study with you guys. All right. Um, announcement as far as what's coming up. Tonight, I'm pretty sure we don't have anything. Tomorrow night, we have also nothing. Right? Yeah. Wednesday night, we're back. And then Thursday, not yet. And then next week, we have Sunday night um, movie. Tuesday night, the brand new course that's starting 60 days. And what's Monday? And then the next Monday we have the chauffeur factory. All right, so stuff is starting to heat up. Then we're going to have soon holiday boot camp and all that stuff. So stay tuned for more fun and excitement. All right, we'll see you guys. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Take care. Thank Pleasure. You, bye, Sarah. Bye, Mark. Bye, Ray. Bye, guys. All right, and to you, thank you for joining. It's great to see you all here. Um, 
action-packed, I feel like we had an action-packed Torah study session. So many different things.